Callum Newman here with the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. What a tumultuous week we're having in the market. We've had the Fed, oh, sorry, the Fed, the RBA raise interest rates on us. Um, we're seeing the market sell down quite severely now. Certainly uh, the big banks are taking a bit of a hiding and the small and mid caps uh, have been taking a pounding for a while and that's continuing. So lots to talk about. Why is this happening? Well, a big part of it is the situation with inflation and the outlook for interest rates, which is causing the volatility and it's causing the market to sell down. Um, we're on the idea that um, the central banks will have to raise rates sharply, slow the economy down and get inflation under control. So inflation, interest rates, these are the domains of the bond market, guys. And so in the next couple of episodes for the podcast, we're going to talk to a couple of US guys, um, which uh, the US market, of course, being the biggest uh, capital market in the world, uh, government bonds, a huge market, corporate bonds, junk bonds, all those sorts of things. Um, our colleagues over at Stansbury run a newsletter where they look for distressed bonds uh, opportunities. So they're licking their chops basically because all this volatility is throwing everything around and getting a look at that. So uh, where uh, uh, the credit analyst uh, is called Mike uh Dibiazzi, and he's going to come on and tell us about what he's seeing in terms of uh recession risk in america credit risk can, will the uh corporate bond market hold up and some of the signals and danger signs that he's um watching closely the signs of distress in the economy and what it might mean for bond investors and stock market investors so coming up mike Dibiazzi on uh, the bond market and where we're going in terms of interest rates, recession risk, and the outlook for the stock market. All right, beauty, today we're talking bonds. Now, out here in Australia, we're not, we don't have such a developed bond market over in the US. It is uh, a big player. I think I'm correct in saying that the corporate bond market in the US is $1.5 trillion altogether, and which is about the almost as big as the Aussie stock market. So it's uh, a big chunk of the financial system in the US. And I would say generally the US investor owns a lot more bonds than the average Aussie investor. So when things start rumbling in the US bond markets, it plays out in the US equity market, which obviously flows back to uh, international markets like Australia. So we're chatting to Mike DeBiaz today to talk about what he's seeing in the corporate bond market. Um, Junk bonds and investment-grade bonds are, are the, roughly the way the, the market splits. Mike, can you tell us, do you do your recommendations just in the what's called the investment-grade area of the market, and are you watching what's happening in the junk bond market? Hey, Callum. Thanks, thanks for having me. I really appreciate uh, the time and um, happy to talk to your, to your audience. Right. Um, I... I the, first of all, the, the corporate bond market in the U.S. is actually um, about nine or ten trillion dollars. It's bigger it's than ten times uh, that. You put. Yeah, yeah. Wow. The, I think you were the number you were referring to is the junk bond market, which is about ah, one point right. six trillion. Yeah. So the high yield, or otherwise known as the junk bond market, is is a smaller subset, about sixteen percent of the total, and that's about one point six trillion dollars. So. Uh, I mostly recommend focus on the junk bond market, you know, the smaller piece of the market. But that's not to say we don't look at corporate uh, investment grade corporate bonds as well. But mainly what the strategy that we employ in our in our newsletter 
um, is focused on high yield or junk bonds. That's where you get the kind of returns that we're looking for. And I'm just thinking, I just want to go back. Is it true, uh, again, I think I'm correct in saying this, that junk bonds began with a guy called Mike Milken in the 80s as an investable class? Is, can you take us through the, the history a little bit of the junk bond market? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Michael Milken was the guy that was really instrumental in, in make in popularizing them. I guess as an investment vehicle. Uh, they, you know, he he had a, a fund and he did very well in the '80s and and invested in in distressed corporate bonds. And he he used the distressed corporate bond market to take control of of troubled companies and. Um, you know, some of them, some of them through bankruptcy and and did quite well by taking control of companies that were in trouble and and turning them around and and um, you know relisting them. Um, but he also made a lot of money by investing in companies, uh, junk bonds that uh, were trading for you know pennies on the dollar. He would buy them up for say thirty or forty cents on the dollar, and then when the bonds paid off at you know at a dollar, he made huge returns for his investors. So yeah, he was the guy that really popularized i guess in in the you know broader investment community um the types of returns that these things uh could 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 uh, produce so he gets a lot of credit for that now if you're listening and you don't know junk bond doesn't exactly scream you know something you want to buy <laughs> when you describe it it's, <laughs> that's a colloquial term right it's a high yield bond that would the, the would normally say um now in terms of investment grade, you'd have a company like Apple, you know, very wealthy. Uh, da, da, da. So it's really a function of, I believe, the credit ratings that go, okay, this company has a lower credit rating and therefore falls into this category and therefore they have to pay a higher yield. Is that correct to their Yeah, investors? that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it's just like with individuals, you know, here in the US, we have credit scores, you know, there's, there's prime borrowers and there's subprime borrowers. So there's a really people with great credit and there's people with not great credit. And same thing with corporations, you know, like you mentioned, Apple and Amazon, they have great, you know, quote unquote, prime borrowers. That's the high yield, I mean, the uh, investment grade credits. But within, you know, the broad categories are investment grade and non-investment grade or high yield or junk. Those are all synonymous terms. But there's there's um, gradations within, within each of those larger classifications. But, you know, the credit rating agencies will um, assign letters to them. There's AAA, which is the highest. There's AA, which is the next highest. Then there's single A. Then it goes down to triple B. And then triple B is the highest level of investment grade. Once you get below triple B, that would be a double B or lower. Then that's where the, you know, non-investment grade or junk or high yield bonds uh, come in. So you've got, you've got double B, you've got single Bs, triple C, double CC. And then within each of those, you've got, you know, there, there's pluses and you know, there'll be like a, a, a double B uh, plus, pure double B, double B minus. So, you know, there's even gradations within double Bs, for example. Um, but the main classifications, as you said, were investment grade, which are the really superior credit worthy corporates. And then there's the high yield or, or non-investment grade junk credits. You know, and the, the word junk is really misleading because, you know, there's a huge difference. I mean, there's a $1.6 trillion pool of non-investment grade debt, as we were talking about earlier. Within that 1.6 trillion, you can have companies that are just on the edge of being considered an investment grade credit. And you can also have ones that yeah. are at the very bottom tier of that, which are teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. So for years, I've read about the junk bond index where it's used or often cited, if you like, as an indicator of where the business cycle might go and interest rates. And 
if it has a bit of a wobble, you know, people come and go, oh, you know, this is it. The, the market's, you know, turning, uh, watch out everybody. And then it sort of rises back up <laughs> and everyone relaxes again. So it's had a wobble, as I understand it, at the start of the year. It's sort of steadied from your view of things. How is the corporate bond market in the U.S. looking? You know, right now, despite all the negative headlines, it's actually very calm. You know, and, and the best way to, that we gauge, um, you know, my team and I gauge the, the overall market is through the high-yield credit spread. And basically, that's just the difference between what the average high-yield bond returns and then what a very safe, risk-free U.S. Treasury of the same maturity would, would yield. So today, the, the credit spread is about 400 basis points, which means, you know, four percentage points. So today, I think the number, I looked at it this afternoon, high-yield bonds on average yield about 7%. U.S. Treasuries, a ten-year Treasury is yielding about three percent. I think the five-year Treasury is yielding about three percent as well. So the difference between that risk-free three percent Treasury and the average high-yield bond at seven percent is four hundred basis points. So that's that tells you how much risk is being priced into high-yield bonds. Now, on average, if you go back throughout history, back to the Michael Milken days in the '80s when they started measuring this stuff. The average high yield spread is somewhere around 600 to 700 basis points. So today we're sitting at 400 below the average, below the historical average. Um, you so don't to, I, I don't really then, get ex- Sorry, could if that was to start rising back towards that long term average, would that still not worry you, or is the market diff- different now in a sense that that would be a sign of things beginning to get stressed? Mm-hmm. I think anytime it's rising, um, the press sort of picks up on that and will say, hey, the, the high yield spread is kind of you know ticked up from 300 basis points at the start of the year to 400 basis points now. And that gets a little bit of press. And then people tend to blow that out of proportion because they don't have the full you know, historical view of it in, in view. You know, for me, you know, I only get excited when I see it rise above the average, when it goes above that six or 700 basis point um, spread. And it's, it hasn't hit that. The last time it hit that was in you'd be able to guess this, I'm sure, March of 2020, when the pandemic, you know, uh, was first announced. And that's when the, sp- the spread literally went from, I think in February, it was something like maybe even less than 300 basis points. And it suddenly spiked above a thousand basis points. So it went above that, you know, long-term average. And it only stayed there for a very brief period of time. But um, that's when I would say there was a real shock in the market. And that's, that's when there was what I would call a crisis level, uh, you know, spread. Um, but what happened, as we all know, is that the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world stepped in and they, they, you know, injected massive amounts of liquidity in the system. They promised to buy, you know, corporate bonds for the first time in their history. And, you know, everybody basically just, you know, said, okay, great. The Fed's got our back. You know, it's safe again. And the spread- so, almost- From your perspective, did the Fed- take away a lot of opportunity from you because I'm thinking as that situation developed, suddenly you're like, I'm the guy that knows which companies are viable and which aren't. And suddenly, as you say, they quickly came in and reflated everything. So you didn't, it was from a distance, it kind of, did it take away the opportunity to, to act on the distress that was appearing? Absolutely. Yeah, it sure did. I mean, we, you know, fortunately, I kind of knew that was going to happen. You know, I sort of anticipated that because if you look at the history of the spread, you know, the credit spread, you'll see these large spikes. It almost looks like a heart attack, right? Like the patient had a heart attack and then they, it goes down rather quickly normally. So then it, these 
incredibly widespread don't last for long periods of time. Now, usually they last a little longer than what happened during the pandemic, but I was worried that I knew the Fed was stepping in and I knew that things were happening and there was talks of, you know, massive injections of liquidity. So in, my, in our newsletter, we recommended, I think, seven bonds in one issue. Normally we do one bond per issue if there's a good enough bond to recommend. If there's not, we won't recommend a bond. We never force it. Um, but there were seven bonds that we recommended in that March 2020 issue. And I think we recommended another three or four in, in the months after that. And spread closed very quickly. And what ended up happening is we ended up selling all of those bonds at or above par value by the end of December. So we closed out all the positions within you know nine months. And I think the average annualized, ret- annualized return on those, those positions was something like close to 60%. Um, I was just and, thinking and, in, the, in a way the Fed m- might've closed it up quickly, but they, well, if you were able to get in, they reflated those bonds for you. <laughs> yeah, it just made for quicker. It made for quicker gains. You just had to jump on it as soon as the spread widened. If you didn't, you would have missed the window, right? So, uh, I don't expect the next time the spread blows out like that that we're going to have a closing of the window as quickly. I think we'll have much more time uh, because I don't think the Fed has the power any longer to you know do what it did last time. I think it's going to well, be much just longer. Just touch on the recovery. Fed. I mean, you mentioned me talking to Porter Stansbury and. Back in 2016, and I'm sure he was and is of the view that the Fed has distorted the whole credit structure with its actions over the last 10 years. Do you feel that to be true as well? Oh, absolutely. The Fed, the Fed is, um, you know, it, it's injected itself and it's really uh, manipulated the market, I guess is the, the way, the best way to say it. So you have to always pay attention to what the Fed's doing, what it can do and can't do. and so. They've they've driven interest rates to practically zero. They've injected liquidity into the system. They've, you know, during the pandemic, they promised to buy corporate bonds for the first time. So basically, people were thinking, you know, well, bonds can't default, right? There's no risk. They've essentially removed the risk from the equation. And so, yeah, you have to pay attention to that. But there is a limit to what the Fed can do, and and I think they've reached that limit today. Um, you know, and because what what happened is they injected too much liquidity into the system. Um, they flooded the market, buying buying treasuries, keeping the the U.S. Treasury rates low, keeping interest rates on the short end of the curve and the long end of the curve almost close to z- to zero. And um, what that's done is it's increased the money supply, and the money supply in the U.S. has increased by forty percent since the start of the pandemic, and that's an incredible move and in, increase in the money supply. It's unprecedented. It's never happened before in history. The only thing that comes close in the U.S. is the 1970s when inflation was, you know, north of 10 percent and even hit 10 15 uh, percent at one point. So all the un- inflation that you've seen over the last six months or so and longer uh, that makes all the headlines today, that's a direct result of the Fed increasing the money supply. Now, you won't hear the Fed say that. You won't hear government officials say that, you know, central banks, they'll tell you, oh, it's the, you know, it's oil prices, it's the war in Ukraine, it's, you know, supply chain bottlenecks, you know. I mean, they'll, they'll throw every excuse out there that they possibly can, but they don't want to take credit for it, right? Because they, you know, obviously they're elected officials and they don't, uh, you know, they want to keep their jobs. So, but the reality is, is that the money supply causes inflation. It always has and always will. I mean, the, um, and when you increase the money supply by 40%, in a span of less than two years, you're going to see inflation. So I expect inflation will continue to stay elevated for um, at least another couple of years. 
I think you're starting to see more and more government officials admit that. Uh, in the U.S., Jerome Powell, the, the Fed chairman, was, you know, last year during early 2021, he, he was saying that, you know, this inflation is transitory. That's what inflation was four or five percent. Mm. You know, it's it's now almost double that, more than double that. And uh, he finally later in the year had to admit that you know, there's no it wasn't transitory. I think so uh, you mentioned how big the money supply expansion was. Are you surprised then that the junk bond, well, the corporate bond market has held up perhaps a little bit better than it, you might have thought? I am very surprised at that, actually. Um, I don't think it's going to last much longer. Uh, I think what we're going to see in these next six to 12 months is you're going to see, like I said, inflation continue to persist. That's putting enormous pressure on the Fed to raise interest rates. They're going to continue raising interest rates, as they've said, at their next you know, three or four meetings, most likely. And I think um, you know, they may have to do it more aggressively than they think. You know, they're talking about half, half a point hikes. Uh, they may have to go more than that. And I think the market is sort of anticipating that they're going to eventually be able to ease off you know, this concept of a soft landing you know, that the market seems to have priced in. I don't think the market's fully realized yet that soft landing is not going to happen and that, that the U.S. is headed for a recession. Uh, I think we're going to be in a recession here in the U.S. by the end of the year, maybe even by the end of summer. So in terms of the bond, I presume you already have bonds that you've recommended. Are you sort of in a thing now where you want to get rid of them? You want to get out of the fixed income market because it's vulnerable to inflation or there's inflation protection that you've perhaps got? Well, I mean, the beautiful thing about bonds is that once you buy a bond, and this is completely different from buying a stock, and this is what most investors don't realize, and most investors have never bought a bond before. And if they bought a bond, they probably bought a, you know, a sovereign bond, a you know, government-issued bond that pays you 1% or 2%. I'm not talking about those kind of bonds, but, even, but it's true for those bonds as well. I'm talking about a, a corporate bond. Once you buy a bond, your return is locked in. So if I buy a bond with a 10% yield to maturity, I'm guaranteed to get paid that 10% you know, as long as the bond pays off, as long as the company is able to repay me that bond. So the bond may mature five years from now. The bond price may drop, but I don't care what, what price, you know, the bond drops to because I know I'm going to get paid my principal yeah. at maturity if I hold on to the bond. So as long as you're willing to hold a bond until maturity, you lock in your return as soon as you buy the bond. With stocks, it's the complete opposite. You don't know what your return is going to be until you sell it. When you buy a bond, you know exactly what your return is going to be when you buy the bond. But I'm just wondering, I hear too, uh, with inflation rising, the appeal of bonds drops. Do you think that's fair to say in general, generally speaking? And that there'll be a, mig a migration out of the fixed income market, away from bonds, that'll go looking for a home in other assets, whether it's property or stocks or gold. Or Do you subscribe to that view that money is now going to, um, especially you know, your average American with his 60-40 portfolio is going to go, well, why am I going to own bonds when... <laughs> Inflation's going crazy. Sure, yeah. I mean, when when interest rates rise, bond prices naturally go down. They move in opposite directions. Absolutely. So, the only way to battle inflation is is raising interest rates, and that's what's happening across the world. So, absolutely, the bond market is going to go down, and that's what we mean by when we say the spread widens. That means bond prices are falling. So, yes, if you own a portfolio of bonds, the prices of those bonds are for sure going to fall. In the portfolio, and in, in my newsletter, I've got. I think like seven or eight positions, all of those prices are going to fall. I'm absolutely almost certain, but I plan on holding those bonds to maturity. As long as you hold them to maturity, 
doesn't matter what the price in the market is. I'm going to get, you know, bonds par value is $1,000. I may have bought the bond for, for $800. Maybe the price is $600 today, so I'm sitting on a loss. Doesn't matter. I'm going to get paid $1,000 by the company when they repay that bond at maturity. So I can ignore those paper losses in my portfolio. But what I'm really excited about is I've now got massive new opportunities when bond prices fall because I can go out and recommend lots of bonds that are trading for pennies on the dollar that, you know, six months ago were trading near par value. And that's the great part of the strategy is the lower the price bond prices go, the more safe they can actually become, right? And the more money you make, yeah. because as bond prices fall, bond yields go up. And I'm, I'm just thinking um, in terms of, uh, this is where you have to be very confident that the, company of the bond that you own is going to survive a potential recession, right? Absolutely. So yeah. Is there, and, and is there industries where you feel that they're more comfortable, maybe like oil in it? I mean, they're making lots of money right now. They're not going to default on their bonds, but is there particular industries that you're now going towards? You know, I, I wouldn't say it's industries specifically. It's it's companies. It's the corporate level because there's lots. Like let's take retail for example, right? There's lot retailers are going to get hurt. Recession's going to hit retailers hard, but there's lots of retailers that have managed their businesses well, uh, that don't have a ton of debt, that have you know they can handle their interest payments. Maybe they can, you know they cover their interest payments five or six times over. You know their their debt ratios are very low. And, and their debt maturities are out. Maybe they don't have any debt coming due for the, another five years, right? A recession that lasts even a year or two, you know, it isn't going to affect them. They're going to be able to pay the debt that they have today, and they're going to be able to pay off their debt five years from now. So you really have to study each company. And on the other you know, end of that spectrum, you've got tons of re retailers that are also have done the exact opposite. They've borrowed to the hilt, and they can barely afford the debt they have today. And they've got you know, millions of dollars worth of debt maturing over the next couple of years. Those are the companies you don't want to touch because they're the ones that are going to go bankrupt during the next recession. So, yeah, there are certain industries you want to steer that are more hold up better than others. But within that industry, there's there's really well-managed businesses and there's poorly managed businesses. And I'm willing to invest in a well-managed business regardless of the industry. You mentioned quantitative easing, which was the expansion of the money supply. Now there's the, the so-called quantitative tightening. Do you feel that that will make things more volatile everywhere across all the markets? I think it is, yes. I, mean, I think, first of all, I don't think there, enough is being done. I think they're moving too slowly, and I don't think they're moving, uh, they're not hiking rates up enough, and they're not reducing the money supply by enough to make a difference. Um, so, but even at the pace they're going, it's already spooking the markets, right? I mean, people are worried about rising interest rates. It's putting pressure on consumers. You know, credit card debt is going up. Mortgage interest rates are going up. So even just the little bit that they're doing is already having a pretty big impact on the markets. But I don't think what they're doing is going to have a meaningful impact on inflation. For them to get to inflation back down to below 2% or even below 3%, they're going to have to do a lot more than they're doing today. And so that's why I think we're going to see inflation rage on for another year or two at least. If the Fed really got serious about taking inflation down, you'd be seeing massive increases. I mean, you know, inflation rate is over eight, north of 8% in the U.S. today. You know, they're talking about raising, you know, rates up to like, you know, 1.5%, 2% on the short end of the curve, you know, 3% on, on the 10-year, you know, 
you've got negative real rates of 5%. You know, you just can't sustain that. Like that's the rates need to go up a lot more than what they are to bring that inflation back down. And, and, um, and I think that's going to throw us into recession. Basically what I'm saying is we're either going to have massively higher interest rates or we're going to, we're going to have, um, persistent high inflation. And guess what both of those do? Either one of them will do. It's going to throw us into a recession. It can't be avoided at this point. <laughs> so well, another thing that I've always heard is that the bond guys are the smart guys and the stock market guys are a bit behind. And therefore, if you want to really know what's going on, you watch what the bond guys are doing and not what the equity market is doing. You know, obviously, maybe you're a little bit biased, but <laughs> do you feel that perception is true? You know, I, I, I do think that's true in general. I don't think we're seeing that play out today. I guess the way I would say it is the bond investors are more measured and less emotional, um, whereas equity investors tend to be more emotional and um, knee-jerk reactions, right? So their reactions are more extreme. So, you know, bond guys, you might see the bond market fall by 20%. Stock market will fall by 50 or 60%, right? So generally that's true, but what I'm not seeing that today because I'm seeing the bond market's a little late to the party today, to be quite honest with you. I think they're being a little um, too too optimistic. Really? Yeah, I do. I, I really think that we should see spreads much wider than they are today. I think bond prices are, are way too high. I think there's just this eternal optimism that the Fed has always bailed us out, you know, that, that look what they did last time, they're going to do it again, there, there's going to be the soft landing. It's a very, opt, op, you know, optimistic market right now. And I, I think they're not seeing the, the dark clouds on the horizon. You sent me some charts before we began, and I noticed there's a chart showing the number of what, what you call, or somebody called zombie companies, which I believe is companies that can only pay the interest on their debt. Is that correct? Not the debt. They, That's right. Yeah. And companies that, that kick, they can, does, whose earnings barely cover the interest on their debt. So, you know, if, if, you're, if your interest costs $100 million, you know, you're, you're making $100 million of profits or less, right, to, to pay for that interest. Another thing I've read about over the years is called, which apparently is a new thing in America, maybe it is, maybe it is, but called the leverage loan market. Is that tied in with those zombie companies? It is. It is. Leverage loan is just another source of financing for these these high yield, uh, low credit companies. Um, you know, they're just going through syndications of banks for the loans rather than the bond market. It's very similar to the bond market. Um, it's just not a market that retail investors, average investors like you and I can can buy those types of loans. It's more for institutional buyers. But yeah, the leverage loan markets. Um, I think it's just about the size of the of the uh, corporate bond market of 1.5 trillion, 1.6 trillion, something like that too. So it's, it's just kind of a, a sister of the, of the corporate bond market. Now, a couple of times you've mentioned the short end of the curve and the long end of the curve. Like this is part of the lingo of the bond market, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but at the moment you're suggesting that the bond market is perhaps a little bit sanguine about the outlook for inflation and the, the economy. So therefore the long end of the curve is about 3%. If 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 that shifts up, that will be a sign that that what is it? You tell me. What is a sign if that long end starts going up? That's a good question. I, I would say 
that if it hits 4% or higher, you're going to you're going to start to see some real panic in the markets. I think most people think that, you know, 3 3.5% is as high as they want to see that go. Um, so if you see north of 4%, that's the time to really look out. Um, you know, and would, would that, just to, to clarify, would that the market be saying we're now seriously worried about either A inflation or or B recession or a combination of both? Well, they're they're worried that inflation will be persistent enough so that the Fed will have to continue to raise interest rates more and more and more to combat inflation. And I think the perception is today is that the Fed will be able to, you know, a couple more hikes at a couple more meetings. And then by the end, somewhere late in 2022, the Fed's going to say, okay, we've done our job, you know, we're done. Uh, We're going to now have a neutral policy and we're not going to raise interest rates any longer. I think that's what the bond market's sort of anticipating. Um, and you know, when the Fed says that, everyone's going to be happy, and they're going to jump back into stocks, and there's going to be another bull market. I think that's the way a lot of investors are looking at it. I don't see it that way at all. I, I think uh, inflation's not going to get under control. The Fed's we're going to realize it can't um, raise interest rates. It's not doing enough quickly enough and buy enough, and uh, they're going to have a hard decision to make. They're going to have to, you know, do what Paul Paul Volcker did back in the 1980s under. President Reagan is he's going to have to go super aggressive and, and take rates up to, you know, six, seven percent uh, or they're going to just back off and try to, to do what they did after the pandemic and just, you know, start buying treasuries again. Promises to buy corporate bonds again. I was just, just going to ask you about that. The, you do you, know, do you feel that the Fed has that option to go, look, we have to step into the market again? I, I think they're going to be compelled to do that. I don't think. Um, it's it's going to be really fascinating for me to watch. I, I predict that they will reverse their policies and go from QT back to QE again and start easing again. And what, what's that going to do? Well, that means they're basically going to say, look, inflation wins, you know, and and inflation is just going to rip its way through the economy. And and then it's really, you know, up to the market to, to work its way out. Um, and and I, I think, you know, you end up with the same thing. You end up with a recession. You end up with the, the poor and middle class, you know, being taxed heavily because inflation is nothing more than a tax, really. Um, you know, and so we're going to have, st- you know, st- inflation for a prolonged period of time. We're going to have low growth rates across the world. We're going to have higher and higher, higher inflation rates. You know, at some point, the you know governments will have to rebalance it. The, the you know, rates will slowly creep up, and the inflation will slowly slowly creep back down over the next several years. But the amount of money, new money that's been printed since the pandemic, it just it has to work its way through the system. And interest rates have to rise, and inflation has to slowly come back down, and the two will have to eventually meet again. So I see a I see at least two to three years of of stagflation and, and slower growth across the world. Do you do you observe the gold market? You know, people say, or it's perceived to be true that negative real rates, as you've described, are good for gold. But gold is, has not really done that much. Do you follow gold, and are you surprised by that? I do follow gold, not super closely, but um, I am I am a little bit surprised by it. I have to say, um, you know, you know, gold doesn't pay pay you an interest rate, obviously, right? Um, and, um, and I think people are just looking for yield. They want they want to make a little bit on their money. It's better than making nothing, right? And if gold hasn't moved, they're not going to put any dollars in there. I think at some point we are going to see gold move. I, I really do. I think it's 
you know, I'm not a chart guy, but I think once it breaks above, you know, maybe $2,000 an ounce and stays there for a while, you know, we might see it rip, you know, 20% higher. Um, but, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a gold guy. I don't have much of uh, an opinion on it other than just, you know, kind of guessing like everybody else. Now, as one newsletter man to another, when you go to the guys at the office and you're like, okay, guys, it's, it's, it's bond. There's these great juicy bonds. Do they just all go, oh yeah, but how do we explain it? All this stuff about yield curves and, and, you know, it's all too hard, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Well, Callum, honestly, you know, we, a lot of what we do is to try to educate people, you know, because most retail investors, the average investor, the average Joe doesn't know anything about bonds. And when they hear the word, and what do they think of? They think of, you know, sovereign bonds, you know, U.S. treasuries in the U.S. Um, and those are boring, right? One or two percent. You know, that's what your, your grandmother and grandfather invest in when you get to be 65 and retire. But they don't. A lot of investors, most investors, don't even realize you can buy corporate bonds, right? They're like, "Well, I didn't know you could even buy that," and it's incredible. Like, you, it, people just don't ever tell you about it. Wall Street doesn't tell you about it. Your broker's not trying to pitch them to you. You know, they're trying to sell you stocks, right? That's that's where the, they make their money. Corporate bonds—they're going to try to tell you that corporate bonds are riskier than stocks, which is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, bonds are a legal obligation of companies. So they have to pay you. They have no choice. If they don't pay you all your interest and all your they go bankrupt, right? It's the complete opposite of stocks. They absolutely owe you nothing. You know, they can cut the dividend tomorrow if the company pays a dividend. Uh, but people have this conception that, oh, corporate bonds are, are risky. They're actually much safer than stocks. And when you buy them for pennies on the dollar, like you can in times of a credit crisis, you can actually make returns that are very stock-like. You know, if you buy a bond for 40 cents on the dollar, you know, you, that's more than 100% return just from the, the capital appreciation because you're going to get paid $1,000 for that $400 price, right? And then along the way, you're going to get paid interest as well. So you can make stock-like returns with an investment that's much safer than stocks. And the irony is the best time to buy them is when nobody wants to invest in anything, right? When everybody's fearful, when they're scared, when the sky is falling and there's a, there's a crisis and the bubble has popped, it's the time you want to load up on corporate bonds. And so we wait for those opportunities. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, licking my chops. I don't want to see, you know, the economy tank and I don't want to see people losing their jobs. But if you're an investor, it's nice to know that you have an option. I remember Porter you've got I think some money in cash set aside. About, now's the time to deploy it. Uh, he said that he felt that most people should just invest in bonds uh, because equities are so volatile. And, you know, as you say, like even if your bond goes down, if you hold it to maturity, you're, you're pretty solid. If your stock gets smashed 60%, there's really no guarantee it will come back. Um, but it's, this, it's so interesting for me as Australian because. Uh, most Aussies would have most of their net wealth, investable sort of liquid stuff, in the uh, Aussie share market. We bond exposure here is is tiny. You can't even really. There's a few ETFs that have government bonds, but tiny, tiny, very few allocations to it. Um, so yeah, in terms of like the education level of the bond market and and how it plays into things, um, you really have to go and watch what's going on in the U S because here we just, we just don't, we just don't have it. Um, okay. Well, so just to sum up what we've talked about today, as far as you're concerned, you're probably coming into an exciting time where you think there's going to be a lot of opportunities 
to buy distress bonds that will give those that acquire them very good odds of a getting the yield and then getting the uh, potential capital growth from it. Yeah, as as a bond investor, I mean this this is sort of the exciting time. You know, we we launched this back in two thousand late two thousand fifteen. We've seen a couple of blips. You know, the pandemic was one. It was very short lived though. But we've been waiting for the next credit crisis. The credit crisis happens about once a decade. Um, you know, last one happened in 2008, 2009. Um, the high yield spread went over 2,000 basis points at that, but wow. during that time, double what it was during the, the um, pandemic's brief run. So I expect something closer to that, and I expect it to last a little bit longer. Corporate debt in the US has more than doubled since the financial crisis. You've got one out of every four companies that's a zombie today. You've got more debt. You've got more companies struggling. I think we're going to see a massive popping of the credit bubble that's been inflating for the last, you know, more than a decade now. And it's going to be the opportunity of a lifetime or at least the opportunity of a decade patient investors. So I would encourage anybody that um, is sort of pessimistic about the future. You set some money aside as cash now and just wait. And you know, if you're interested in bonds, I think it's it's definitely an area uh, of the universe, investing universe, you need to pay attention to because the world's wealthiest investors do exactly this. This is the strategy that we've copied from the world's wealthiest investors. Um, you know, guys like Warren Buffett and Howard Marks, they raise massive amounts of capital. You know, when when the bubble looks like it's going to pop, and they deploy it when everybody else wants nothing to do with the, the bond market, and they make massive returns for their investors. And that's what we plan on doing for our subscribers. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is the time to, to, to uh, I think, set aside some cash and get ready for that. Beauty. All right, mate, it, we'll leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I, f- I find that whole fixed income area quite interesting. And as again, you don't really hear about it as much, certainly as you say, like it just the stock, stock market and stocks dominate everything. So it's been a pleasure and um, we'll see what happens. Uh, and Listen, when, when, when you're going when, haywire, when, sorry? When the billionaires make that much money, you think they want to share that idea with other people? That's right. Well, funny you mentioned Howard Marks and, and I guess guys like Bill Gross once upon a time. And who's the, who's the Bond King, Jeff Gunlark or whatever? Right. We yep. don't have those equivalent figures here in Australia. We don't have any Bond Kings or Queens or <laughs> we got Bond well, well, maybe Maybe you can be the next one. Make a name for oh. yourself in Bonds, the stress Bonds. Maybe. Well, I'm going to have to fly to Georgia and you're going to have to uh, teach me all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> 